As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Nga mihinui and welcome. From Radio New Zealand National, here's our changing world. Will the world agree on a new climate plan later this year? Earlier this month, New Zealand submitted its climate target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 11% on 1990 levels by 2030 to the United Nations Convention on Climate Change, ahead of international negotiations that will take place in Paris in December. Veronica asks the UN's climate chief, Christiana Figueres, whether New Zealand's and other countries' climate commitments are ambitious enough to reach a global agreement at the climate summit. I'm actually not only optimistic, I'm actually quite certain that we are going to reach a global agreement and that uh, it is going to be legally binding. Let me explain what I mean by both of those things. We are going to reach a global agreement in the sense that all countries will be participating and the agreement that is reached, the structure that they will all construct together, is going to be applicable to all countries. What is interesting about that is that it's going to be applicable in different ways to different countries. So we are well beyond a construct of a climate change response or climate change regime that looks at the world as though there were only two realities or looks only at a binary world, which is the world that we had under the Kyoto Protocol. So this is developing and developed countries? Developed and developing countries, correct. This agreement, if you will, um, is more like building a very broad highway that has many different lanes in it, whereby some countries will get in the fast lane, some countries will get in the slow lane, some countries will get in other lanes, corporations will get into a lane, investment community will get into a lane. So it is a very broad highway where everyone will slot themselves in to a particular pace, a particular speed, and also with a particular vehicle of engagement. What that means is with a different metric. So it's very possible that the engagement that we will have from developed countries will be measured differently than the engagement that we have from developing countries. So if you will, we're building a very, very broad highway that allows for diversity within the highway, but it is a highway that goes in one direction. It is a highway that is a long-term path, a long-term highway toward climate neutrality, if you will, toward restoring the ecological balance between the emissions that will be unavoidable in the end and the natural absorptive capacity of the planet. 
That is where science says we will have to be. So can you explain to me how the legally binding part of it would work? Is it like a treaty where countries sign up to it, but then their domestic legislation is to provide, and that's where the ratification happens? Is it going to be similar to that? No, it's going to be actually more complex. The world is definitely much more complex than it was 20 years ago, and this is going to be yet another expression of that complexity, because I don't think that the agreement as a whole will have one particular characteristic of legal bindingness, as though that were a word, and if it's not, let's make it up right now. It is probably going to be a much more complex uh, arrangement where some components of the agreement will be internationally legally binding, other components of the agreement will be domestically legally binding. So what kind of legal nature is going to apply to each component is still under consideration and under negotiation. Now, back in 2009 in Copenhagen, hopes were also quite high that we would get an agreement. What is different now? There are many, many differences uh, to where we were in 2009. First, we definitely have a much more robust domestic policy structure internationally. While before Copenhagen, we had 40 to 80 climate change legislations and regulations around the world. Today, we have over 800. Secondly, technology has come down in price remarkably. Just solar has come down 80% in cost since 2008-9. Wind has also come down in cost. Efficiency of both has gone up. And now with the new investments in battery storage, we are now at the point of true competitiveness with more traditional fossil fuels, um, even for grid-connected electricity. So policy has moved forward at the domestic level. Technology has become much more competitive and much more realistic. Investment flows are definitely increasing in the way that they are in their trajectory, We have much more, just last year, much more being invested into renewable energy. New energy is much more on the side of renewables than it is on the side of traditional fossil fuels. The markets are definitely beginning to understand the risks of not acting on climate change. So it's a very, very different context. We also have very differently from uh, what we had before Copenhagen, and I think this is the major difference, we have each of the countries doing their internal homework and coming forward with their climate change action plans, their carbon management plans, from a perspective that makes sense to them. And that is why those carbon management plans are called nationally determined contributions, because it is from a perspective that makes sense to them. We already have 46 of these. We expect more to come in over the next uh, few months. But the important thing behind those is that there is an accelerated uh, growing realization that action on climate change is not just of global benefit, but it actually can be used to accelerate many of the um, economic and energy and land use transformations that are of benefit two countries at a national level. Let me ask you about these nationally determined commitments, or they are called INDCs. You've got a fair number there, but several groups have assessed the commitments that those countries have made, and 
There's an agreement that what is there now as commitment won't actually stop us at the two-degree warming. It's not good enough as it is. Yet that is what countries have agreed that we should be aiming for. We've been saying for quite a while, in fact, for over 12 months, that the sum total of all of the INDCs, including those that are still to come, will not in and of themselves get us onto the two-degree pathway. The sum total of those emission reductions is still above what we should have in order to stay underneath the limit of two degrees. That is why it is so important that the Paris Agreement not only gather the current efforts, which are represented by these INDCs, but also establish the pathway, the highway toward the two degrees. Because reaching two degrees is not an, a, a single isolated effort. It is actually much more of a long-term transformation that countries need to um, commit to and need to accelerate. And that is why these two things need to be seen as being an integral component of each other. It will require some raised ambition on just about every country, really. New Zealand, for example, has a gazetted commitment to um, reduce by 50% on 1990 levels by 2050. But that's nowhere near that two-degree goal. How can you raise that ambition? What is being contemplated under the um, Paris Agreement is that the INDCs that are coming in now are going to be received as a first step. If you will, to go back to my highway analogy, it is the first stop on the way on this highway. It is certainly not the last. We will be quantifying and there will be many, many different observers and analysts who quantify the full effort of the INDCs for the time period in which they are put in. Bottom line, what everybody will agree is that it is only a first step and that it will be necessary for countries to come back and use their INDCs as their first step, as their baseline, and then increase over time, let's say every five years, although that periodicity hasn't been agreed yet, but just for the thought experiment, let's say every five years, countries would take a look and assess what they have achieved and then be able to come in with a further effort. The principle of no backsliding, the principle of whatever you put in now is the floor and you're not allowed to go back down below that is a very important principle that has already been agreed to. So we know that the collectivity of the INDCs is going to constitute the floor and that over time, over every X number of years, let's say five just for illustration, the countries will come in with their further effort as they progress along the highway. In the hope that it will get us to that two degrees, is it an important target for you, that two degrees? Absolutely. It is absolutely an important target, and it's not two degrees. It's to stay below two degrees, because anything other than that does not give any chance of survival to the most vulnerable. And you sitting in New Zealand, I think, are very, very aware of the fate of all the Pacific Islands very close to you. And you know what it would mean to New Zealand for those islands to be under um, environmental pressure, under sea level rise. You know what it would mean in terms of immigration just to start with. So it is in everyone's interest 
that we actually stay below 2 degrees. In fact, that we try to stay as close to 1.5 degrees as possible, although that may seem completely impossible right now. But the fact is that technology is accelerating every day. What seems pie in the sky and illusory and science fiction today will be reality tomorrow. And we have to continue to keep as our guiding light that we want certainly to stay under 2 degrees and we want to stay as close to 1.5 as possible because that gives the most vulnerable a better chance of survival. If I were to speak from New Zealand's perspective, people seem to be heading that way. We've had consultation meetings in the build-up to the commitment that the government made. So people were asking for a very ambitious target, but yet what we got was disappointing for many. So it seems what's lacking is really political will rather than people's own ambitions. Can you see that globally the political will will be there to do this? Yes. Global political will is the result of two things. First, the political will of each country. And I see that that has increased over the past five years. A, because everyone is much more aware of the risks and the negative impacts, and also because everyone is much more aware of the short-term and long-term benefits. So individual political will of each country is on the rise. But we do not depend only on individual political will. Global political will is the result of individual government will as well as the collective will of countries that work together, i.e. the cooperation will. And that is something that we're also seeing. So we're not only seeing countries come forward individually with their nationally determined contributions, we're also seeing groups of countries come forward saying, this is how much I can do individually. But if we cooperate across the boundaries, we can all do more. So we see, for example, a China-U.S. agreement where each of them has committed to do something internally within their own geographical boundaries, but cooperating between the two of them, they can do more. We see a U.S.-India. We see EU-China. We see more and more of these cooperative agreements of collaboration across boundaries that are contributing to the global political will. There's been a shift in how we talk about climate change in that context of co-benefits, that whatever we do for the climate will actually be good for us anyway or good for the environment. Is that a good strategy forward? It's very, very important to explore all of the benefits of climate action, and that is something that we do in our personal life. You never make a decision um, or take action without exploring the full possibility, the full panoply of the benefits that you may take out of any personal decision or any personal action. You don't do it necessarily just for one. And the same thing is true of countries. The same thing is true of governments. It is absolutely critical that countries understand that uh, reducing coal consumption, for example, and coal burning also actually is very, very beneficial for health. It is not just important for the value of human life, but it also reduces health costs along the way. So all of these co-benefits that you get from energy security, from better health, from energy efficiency, 
from food security, from better water security, all of these are absolutely critical. It is actually very fortuitous that we're not trying to do something here only from the global perspective. It's very fortuitous that we have all of these national benefits that also uh, reinforce the value of working on climate, the, probably the most urgent of which is job creation. Because if there's anything that we need right now around the world is to foster economic growth through job creation. And that is something that I don't think that we have explored, or we have not communicated clearly enough, how going into a low-carbon economy is actually the biggest, I would call it the mega development project of this century, because it creates many, many new industries, it creates jobs, it creates growth, and it is actually the engine of power and of growth of this century. Could it be that the business world or this kind of change in economy might even outpace the UN negotiations? Well, you know, this is a, a, a wonderfully enough, this is actually a virtuous cycle um, in which many of the actions that we now see underway around the world are either in reaction to the progress of, uh, of the negotiations and of policymaking or in anticipation of. And the more that we see shift of capital, the more that we see engagement with renewable energy generation, the more that we see all of this action on climate change, the more possible it makes a more ambitious agreement. This is not about choosing one or the other. This is about realizing that policy, both at the international as well as at the national level, and action on the ground are all mutually reinforcing. That was Christiana Figueres, the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Convention on Climate Change. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.